Welcome to Pilot Boys episode 119. Today we have some news and notes around the NFL and a lot of what's going on. But uh, what we really want to highlight is our Head in the Clouds interview with world record holder Bill Gillespie, who at the age of 62 just set a record for bench press at over 1,100 pounds. Uh, so that interview was mind-blowing. Get ready for that. In the meantime, let's jump in and get some news and notes going. Let's get it. Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Today, for our Head in the Clouds interview, we have the current world record holder for the bench press. The 62-year-old Bill Gillespie. Bill, I'm sorry to age you right off the bat, but I, I think it's just so freaking inspiring what you're doing out there. No, thank you. No, I think it's an honor. I love it. Uh, I, I, I embrace it. It doesn't bother me whatsoever. <laughs> That's amazing, man. So, you know, before we get into the lift that happened last week, um, I would just love, love to just frame up for the audience. We were talking a little bit before this um, about your background, you know, playing sports, doing strength and conditioning. Um, you want to talk to us a little bit about your upbringing. You had mentioned that um, you actually grew up not actually feeling very strong relative to your size and, and feeling quite small. Um, mm -hmm. When when did your kind of athletic career start? How did you get into it? And what was your experience like? I don't remember a time in my life where I didn't want to be strong. Uh, my mom and I talked the other day and she was laughing how she could get me to rake the uh, – the leaves in the yard because I she told me it built big muscles and so <laughs> <laughs> I'd do it twice you know uh, uh my grandfather uh when I was like three years old put a big old uh spike in a stump handed me a little hammer and every Sunday I'd go to visit I'd sit there and pound that thing because he told me it put make me build big muscles you know and I, I I just always wanted to be strong it was it was something I dreamed of and I always dreamed of being the best in the world at something. I didn't really care what it was. I just wanted to be the best. I wanted to stand on that mountaintop where no man has ever stood before, look around and go, wow, what a view. I, you know, I know I probably may not get to stand there very long, but I've always dreamed of doing, getting to do that one time in my life, you know? And um, I really didn't know, if, I, I didn't know the bench press because I, grew up i worked really hard at training the upper body i did uh in the ninth grade i did 600 push-ups every single day wow. i did yeah i did 12 sets of 50 uh every day to try to develop my upper body uh you know i was never afraid of hard work ever i i, I that was the least of my concern it was how hard was it going to be uh what i needed was direction and uh and knowledge and uh, I, I started I started playing sports as soon as I knew there was such a thing. Baseball, <laughs> football, basketball, wrestling, track and field, anything and everything I could compete in. Uh, I was I, I was when I finally in college or post college heard that there were people that were afraid to lose. I'm like, what are you talking about? You don't compete because you're afraid to lose. I've never, I couldn't even comprehend that. Uh, I could care less 
if uh, I got humiliated. All I cared was give me the opportunity to compete. And uh, what's funny is when I coached in the NFL with the Seahawks, uh, that was the one consistent factor with the football players was they all loved to compete. They just, they thrived on every day in that weight room. There was $200, $300 bet on something because the guys just love to compete. And uh, I, I, that was a, that's a factor that I think really holds a lot of people back is they're scared to lose. And a, you can't be. That's a great, that's a great point, right? Is a lot of people want to be really good at something, but they don't realize that in that process, you have to lose. You have to, to. Add, you have to get there. And so that fear of losing actually prevents you from accomplishing what you want to accomplish. Right. And I'm sure in in this journey through your whole lifetime of journeys, you can probably add up the failures and say there's, and and you put them on a scale compared to this world record. You'd say all these failures, probably the scales probably go this way, but the value of the success is worth all of those failures. And I think it takes experience for people to actually understand that. You know, when I, when I, I know, I'm not trying to go jump ahead, but when I set the record, the first thing, everybody was celebrating the lift. And I'm like, that's great, guys. But it's about the journey. It was about the 50-year yeah. process. All the things I got to learn on it, you know? And and you're right. If you sit there and look at the number of failures I have, I could write a book on 100 to 1 every time, the times I failed. I failed all the time uh, you know I, it's just it's part of the process but you got to learn from those failures you got to l- learn how to you know you're only a failure when you fail to get up and try again that's yeah. when you're that's when you're a failure but if you go and don't or if you're not successful just you got to figure out why you're never going to have a perfect day uh going into the meet oh man you can't imagine I had a blowout uh, on my tire going 75 miles an hour down the freeway in freezing rain and snow as it was getting dark. Somebody didn't tie down a ladder, hit the ladder on the middle of the freeway, blew my tire out, and I spent three hours in the freezing rain the night before the meet changing that tire. I was exhausted. I mean, it was it was hard. And every step of the way, that tire didn't want to come off. Didn't want to. It didn't want to help me at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, my arms, my forearms were exhausted. And I'm thinking, oh, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. You're never going to have a perfect scenario to be successful. Stop looking for it. Look for ways to be successful in an imperfect scenario. That's that such a great point. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. So two questions. One, where did this mindset come from for you? Was it was it part of your upbringing with your parents? Was it part of the culture you picked up in sports? And then second, as you as you've gotten deeper into the heavier and heavier lifts, how have you created the mental place that you go to during these uh, lifts? This is a great question. I got the competitive drive from my mom. I got the genetic strength from my father. I, <laughs> my mom, my mom is extremely competitive. Um, the cool thing about lifting weights is this. 
300 pounds is 300 pounds today. It's 300 pounds tomorrow. It never changes. And when you go in that weight room and you miss 300 pounds and you have to look yourself in the mirror and go, what has to change? That 300 pounds ain't going to change. That 300 pounds ain't going to have a good day. Ain't going to have a bad day. Mm-hmm. You're the one that has to change. You're the one that's going to go, hey, what do I got to do to get that 300 pounds? And when you come back and you get that 300 pounds, who got better? Who learned how to compete better? Mm-hmm. You know, and these are factors that help make a better football team because when you teach a football team how to compete, you know, when, when I was at the University of Washington, we won like 23 years. We won 28 games. 23 of them were fourth quarter come from behind wins. And people said, oh, you guys are the best conditioned team out there. And I'm like, nah, probably not. But our team knows how to compete better than any other team. And we taught them that in the off season in the weight room, you know, teaching them how to compete, build their confidence so that when we go out in the game, we've already been out there. We already know what it was going to take to win. Yeah. It's it's interesting. You bring that up because, um, Partha and I are are both big Ohio state fans and, uh, (laughs) and we have some good, some good connections in the inner workings and with the players and the coaches and they all point to the strength and conditioning coach, Mick Mariotti, yeah. who, who, again, that's the culture, right? And I wanted to tap into that because you have spent a lot of your years as a strength and conditioning coach at kind of that critical phase for elite athletes between when they go from high school where they're just, most of them are just more physically talented and gifted to going to college where everybody is just as talented as they are. And now the hard work begins. And then, you know, we had uh, the good friend Gary Conley on, and he had to gain like 25 pounds in one off season. Right. So I wanted to talk to you about that, pushing, pushing that phase, those people to the extent of their limits and being pushed in a way that they've never been pushed before. How do you bring that out of people as a strength and conditioning coach? And how do you bring that out of yourself? Well, uh, the, the first problem you're going to face as a strength and conditioning coach is the recruiting process, all right? Everybody's telling this young man how great he's going to be, how he's gonna, just going to walk in here and walk on water. And you're like, all right, here's reality. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going I'm to kick your butt till you're going to puke, till you can't see straight, all right? And then I'm going to push you some more. I'm going to push you when you don't feel like getting pushed, and you're going to think, I hate you. And the fact of the matter is, I don't hate you. I love you. And that's why I'm going to push you. All right. Yeah. Uh, but the, the trick to being a college strength and conditioning coach, especially uh, at the FCS level, is this. Is you have Cadillacs that come in that weight room. Yeah. But they got a couple screws missing. All right. And we had one young man who was zero stars recruited by nobody and he came in and the coaches said what can you do with him he's too slow on the football field i said i know exactly what to do with him and uh we went and just bombarded this young man uh with dealing with what his one problem was well this kid went from zero stars to five stars he went to he he was he became a stud, all right? 
And 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 there's so many times there are so many kids that are so close to being a Cadillac. But the fact of the matter is, is a lot of times they don't believe in themselves. And you've got to go and push them, encourage them, but you got to reveal to them that they are a Cadillac. And they, if you just keep patient with it, they're going to get there. That and their parents. Their parents will think that they're just superstars ready to step on the field and change the world. And you're like, give me time. Don't let the we don't want this young man playing too early before we've been able to correct all the problems. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. What so, What did you do to find that within yourself to, to discover that you were a Cadillac? Oh, you know what? Uh, it was an encouragement of the people around me. Uh, you know, I'm like everybody else. I'm insecure. I doubt myself. Uh, you know, I don't see myself as that guy. Uh, I, I know that Shoot, I've had, I've had at least twenty training partners stronger than I am. I'm not the, you know, I, I had this guy who's like uh, one of the leading authorities in strength training. He worked with, worked out with me, and he looked at me and he goes, "You're not that strong." I said, <laughs> "I said I don't have to be as long as I lift more than you. You think I am?" And uh, <laughs> there, there's a world of difference, you know. Uh, <clears throat> Being able to exhibit your strengths and finding out every little trick that there is is the key. It's, and, and that's not just true in lifting weights, it's true in life. Uh, teaching people how to find every little detail. I had to, uh, I was fortunate enough to work with uh, uh, Don James at the University of Washington as the head football coach. <clears throat> Don James, you may not recognize him, but he was mentor to two pretty good football coaches, Urban Meyer and Nick Saban. That's who taught, yeah. So he, yeah, pretty good. So um, we had a home game, and when you have a home game, you always stay in a hotel there in town, and yeah. then they bust you to the game. So uh, the following Monday, we're in a staff meeting. It was one of my first staff meetings to sit in, and and uh, Coach James says, uh, "My reading light didn't work on the bus to the game." I'm thinking, okay, big deal, you know, deal with it, you know. Uh, and our football uh, director of operations said, Coach, I'll look into it. He says, no, fire the bus company. And everybody's like, eyeballs open up, I'm like, what? He says, if they're not going to make sure the light works, how do I know the bus is going to run? How do I know my football team's going to get to the game? And how do I know we're not going to lose the game because their buses don't run correctly? And he was such a stickler on detail that he said, we're going to beat your the other teams because we're going to make fewer mistakes than you are. And look at, look at not only him, but his uh, the guys he mentored and the success that they've had. And that's something I picked up on. And I said, you know what? If I can eliminate mistakes and I can focus on details, I can make myself a lot better uh, lifter and athlete than what I naturally am uh, capable of. The devil is in the details. And you brought up an interesting point about the strength and conditioning coach saying you're not that strong, right? Because no. everybody sees this weight that you put up and say, and says that guy's so strong. He's got to be so <laughs> physically strong. But just like in everything else, there's technique. There's a lot more to it than just how physically strong you are. 
wanted to, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that in terms of overcoming that, right? People doubting your strength, you kind of having your own questions about like your actual natural strength mm -hmm. and overcoming that to become the world's strongest bench presser. Like, how do you do that? <laughs> well, for, for that's a great paradox, right? Because yeah. you don't feel like you're the strongest guy in the world, but nope. you lifted the most weight. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would go to a competition and I'd be like, you know, picking the opening step, let's say a thousand pounds. And the second most weight somebody was picking was 500. And I'd be like looking around going, dude, these guys are huge, man. What am I thinking? And I start questioning myself. I'm like, do I, should I really be opening with a thousand? I mean, I'm like, this is crazy. Uh, and after a while I just went, I'm all right with it. You know, and I, I you know, I developed a training system that was so abnormal that, you know, people kind of go, Oh, there's no way it works. Well, it works for me and it works for about 20 other guys I coach. So, uh, <laughs> I just, <laughs> I, I eliminate, I eliminate, uh, uh, wasted energy. I don't waste energy in our training. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I don't go and do things just because this is what we've always done. This is what we have to do. No, if it don't, if it don't make me better, I ain't doing it. I'm not going to waste energy on it. And, uh, when I did that, my bench just took off, man. It's just, it's gone crazy, uh, over the last two, three years. What was it when you say took off? What was it about three years ago? And, and, you know, um, how quickly did you see the change? Well, you know, people ask me if I've ever had a bad day. <laughs> I'm like I, I said, I had a bad decade. You know, <laughs> when I was 50, man, all the way through the 50s, my 50s, I just assumed, well, I'm 50. I'm getting old, you know, you know, this is how it is. But I was also working 70 hours a week. Wow. You know, I was, yeah, I was exhausted, and I didn't get time to train like I should. Obviously, I wouldn't get time to recover. One, get time to sleep, and so uh, you know, I'm trying to do 800 again. I want to do 800 again, and uh, when I quit coaching, then all of a sudden I had time to train. I had time to program my workouts. I had time to recover. I I got uh, nutri the nutritional supplements from the company I work with. We get them for free. Bam, bam, bam! All of a sudden, everything comes together, and the bench went it goes crazy. But if I had quit, if I quit earlier, which after ten years of banging my head against the wall, I plus trust me, I had enough people tell me you've done all you can do, you can't get no better, quit. I mean, people close to me telling yeah. me quit. Why do you keep wasting your time? Quit. Who in their right mind thinks that you're 50s, late 50s, you're going to get better? And for some reason, I just kept believing that I was going to be able to do it. And uh, I knew I'd get better. I did not see myself as being going for number one up until about two years ago. And then I saw that I had a chance. And then it was an all-out consumption. Uh, <laughs> my, <laughs> my wife my wife my sweet wonderful wife uh you know we go on vacation and it's like all right honey this is great but i'm working out this day this day this day and she's just like she don't even argue with me anymore about it. it's like okay and, you know, she's just like but now it's like all right we're gonna have a life together and i'm like i'm all for it baby you've so, earned it <laughs> so you've reached the mountaintop right yes sir yes, so sir. what's next what's next in terms of 
do you, you know, because it, it takes a lot, right? Um, mm-hmm. In terms of training, in terms of eating, in terms of how, what, what is the shift you're going to make now that you've accomplished and gotten to the mountaintop? Are you going to continue to push or are you going to focus on, on training and then also changing, changing your body type a little bit? And well, what's that process look like? All right. First of all, I announced to the people at the gym, at the, at the competition, that it, it was going to be my last competition. Yes. Wow. So, so everybody knew. Uh, I didn't make it. Before, before you actually did the lift. Yeah, I announced it before the competition. I, I knew it. Wow. Uh, and uh, I knew that it was, I knew it was going to be my last one. Um, and as I stepped up to the platform, I told, I prayed and I said, God, I said, you know what? If I make it, I'm okay. If I don't make it, I'm okay. I just want to thank you for the 50-year journey that you've given to me because that's that's where the value is. And I just appreciate you giving me 50 years to compete. I just, I, wow. you know, and, uh, but if you, I said, if you got any tips, I sure would appreciate them. And uh, about a minute <laughs> later, a minute later, I got this thought. I said, you should move your hand out about an eighth of an inch. I'm like, oh, okay. So I did. And that's the only adjustment I, I made in the lift. So I moved my hand out one eighth of an inch. But wow. uh, uh, I've already lost 20 pounds uh, in a week and a half uh, wow. because because I was force feeding myself to stay up that big. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to trim up a little bit. I still love lifting heavy, but I'm not going to compete anymore. Um uh-huh. And uh, what, what I want to do is this, is I, I, I want to take that 50-year journey and I want to reminisce and sit down and figure out what was it I learned about life? What was it that I learned that I could help other people with so they don't have to spend 50 years lifting to learn these, these lessons in life so that I can take them and to a person that has no interest at all about lifting weights and I could communicate life valuable life lessons to them to enrich their lives. Does that make sense? That's oh, very yeah. powerful, man. That's very yeah. powerful. Yeah. And I think that is the reason, you know, because of your genuine spirit, that is the reason that you accomplished this, right? Oh, because oh. Uh, you. you have the perspective and the humility in your approach um, and, and you value the things that, that, you're supposed to value out of it. It wasn't about the 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 actual accomplishment of everybody saying, "Look at Bill; he's the world record holder." It was about your personal journey and overcoming the obstacles you faced in life to get there. And that's, you know, that's very powerful and inspiring. Specifically, you know, the fact that you are a, a supportive or supporter of our brand and our motto is "Stay Moving." It's just amazing to have somebody to be such a real world example of that a span of 50 years to continue to stay moving and pursue a goal um in the way that you have um i i know for me and for our company it's it's very inspiring and very motivating um to see that so you you're definitely doing starting that job and of of your goal of what you want what you want to pass through with this um with us yeah and i also want to add i think that just the release of you know whatever it was in that moment on that last lift the last competition 
sounds like you took some weight off that bar emotionally for yourself. Yes. 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 It was, uh, it was, it was, I, I cried like a baby. And what was really cool was, uh, I called my wife afterwards. I always called my wife, my son, my daughter. And I called them, um, called my wife and she started crying. I almost start crying now. Wow. Uh, she, she started crying cause she knew how much it meant to me. And then I called my son and he started crying. And, uh, and then I called my daughter and she started crying because they knew how much I had invested my life into to doing this, that, uh, it was not something that was just casual that I just wanted to go out and try. It was, it was, it was everything I had to, to get a 50, this. a 50 year journey. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. And, um, you know, just, just for our listeners, if, if you wouldn't mind, I would love, uh, to just get your kind of play by play of <laughs> the lift, um, the weight, how was it getting it on? What were you thinking? All right. Well, I, I, I we talked, I talked with my training partners extensively and in, co- in powerlifting competitions, when you pick a weight for your first attempt, you can't lower the weight. Okay, so I we talked it over. They said they said, Bill, nothing's going to make you happy except for the all time world record. Nothing. Mm -hmm. So you might as well put it on the bar and go for it. And I had been close before, uh, but going into the meet, I I I had gotten that that cold that was going around with the nose just draining like crazy. My eyes were bloodshot red. Uh, I had been sick, really sick for, uh, uh, up until a week before the meet. Um, uh, just trying to get my workouts in. I got, uh, I had to travel three and a half hours to go down to the gym in North Carolina, Muzz's gym and train with a buddy of mine. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, we, we were trying to find guys who could help me you know, lift the weight off, you know, because mm-hmm. that kind of, that kind of weight, just, you got to have the right guys. If it's not, if it's not correctly, it, you're going to get hurt. So, uh, you know, I was pretty exhausted going into this thing, not feeling all that great. Uh, but I go in the meet, I uh, hadn't had a really good workout. Didn't, I knew I was pretty strong, but I didn't feel like I had a, a, an opportunity to exhibit it, uh, before that. Uh, at, at, when I went to warm up, uh, I felt pretty good. And then uh, my first attempt, I tried the 1129, took the weight out, and my right hamstring cramped up. Oh, now, when, yeah, when your hamstring cramps up, you're like the right one, the bar goes to the left. And with over 1,100 pounds, when it goes to the left, you ain't pulling it back over. And I, I started to just try to do it, and I'm like, no, nah, grab it, guys. You know, well, more like grab it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there went my first attempt. And I'm like, okay, all right. So my second attempt, uh, I took it out. Uh, I'm, I must not have had it in position because it felt really heavy. I know it's supposed to feel heavy, uh, <laughs> but it felt it felt really heavy. Uh, and uh, I brought it down to, uh, just about to my chest, and I said, grab it. And uh, so I didn't even push. I didn't even come close to even getting my first or second attempt, you know. So uh, that's why I didn't have a lot of hope on my last attempt. 
but when I told when I when I decided to move my grip out uh, eighth of an inch, uh, boy, I'll tell you what. Uh, when that thing came down, uh, it, it it felt pretty good when I took it out. Uh, when it came down, I touched my chest, and the judge yelled press. It startled me. It shocked me when that thing came up as fast as it did. And normally, the right side, I have a really bad right shoulder, it's always leaning to the right. Not not this one, man. It was perfect. And I was level, uh, locked out. Uh, it looked, it. they made me hold it at the top a little bit longer because out of respect for being the all-time world record, they wanted to make sure that it was, you know, no questions asked about it. And when he yelled racket, I didn't even look to see if the judges passed the lift. I knew there was no way they were going to pass that lift. I was like, I knew it was good. And uh, we started the celebration, and I started tears falling, crying down, down my face. That's wow. amazing. That's really amazing. The, the, the last thing that, you know, and, and you, you started this conversation talking about it, I think what makes this extra special is the fact that you're 62 years of age. You know, as Partha said, we don't want to age you, but I think it's an important thing to talk about for this reason. One, to highlight your journey and that you shouldn't ever quit on your path and your goal in life. And the second part of this is that there's 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 cultural awareness around age and how your body declines naturally. We know that. But to see you push yourself at that age uh, to accomplish this, I think, is is very inspiring from that perspective, right? Is that the, the mental overcoming all of those natural things that are occurring in life? Because I'm sure you feel pains more now at 62 than you did at 22. I'm sure you have some physical issues that you didn't have at 21, 22. But you mentally blocked all those things out to continue to pursue and achieve your goal. And I think that's just one of the things that stands out the most to me. Can, can you speak to a little bit to that? In terms yes. of journey? You talked about you had a bad decade in your 50s, just the mental strength it took to stay consistent, stay pushing towards your goal for 50 years. I tell people all the time, if I only lifted when I felt good, I'd lift about two times a year. I mean, yeah. you, you know, I just... I hurt all the time. And yeah. the, the worst is trying to sleep at night. I I hurt so bad. It's been incredible. Uh, you know, and uh, you get you get discouraged from hurting so bad. But you learn how from the years when you were younger, pushing through that pain, doing like the 600 push-ups a day when I was in the ninth grade. Yeah. You learn how to discipline yourself to push through when it hurts, you know, and you, you learn to be smart about it. You learn what you, your body can handle, what it can, but you also start to learn, Hey, wait a minute. That ain't as bad as I want it to be. You know, I could, as I think it is, I could, I could push myself. I can go ahead and push myself. And, uh, you know, there's times when you just, you got to do it out of the discipline of doing it. There's so many days you don't feel like doing it. You just don't feel like it's not there. But it's the discipline of doing it every time you're supposed to do it that gets you to where you want to go. And when you do have a day that you feel like doing it, 
you got something there. You got some substance to you. You got something there to do something with it. Man, I love that, man. And, um, you know, I think one of the other things I want to add is as we're as we're kind of um, wrapping up the, the story here, um, something that was humbling for us and for our whole team was seeing you do something that people didn't think was possible at an age people don't believe is possible in our product as well. In the lasso socks, um, it was beyond humbling to see you wear them and, and get benefit from them. So, I mean, first just wanted to say I'm really grateful, but man, we, we appreciate your support over the last couple of years and we're so grateful that the product makes an impact for you. Well, I want to thank you because I'm going to tell you the only time them socks come off my feet is when I take a shower. That's it. <laughs> I, wear, <laughs> I wear them all day, all night. I sleep in them uh, because the circulation is such a problem at my age. And I, I've got to get the right circulation or I'm going to have problems. And surprisingly, it's my legs that are holding me back from my bench press, not my upper body, to my wow. legs. Wow. So wow. the socks, you know, the socks played a huge role in helping me allow me to train my quads to give me the strength because, all right, when you put 1,100 pounds on there and you bring it down, you can only, you can't even imagine the pressure that's on your chest and how badly your legs don't want to stay up there. You've got to drive with your legs. If you lose the position with your legs, it's over, over. So the legs play a way bigger role in the bench press than what most people ever comprehend. Wow. Well, so thank, so thank you for your support in helping me achieve it. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Yeah, and that that is amazing to hear. And, and obviously, right back at you, Bill. Um, this has been you know, just super awesome, super illuminating. I think we definitely are going to have to get you back during college football season once uh, <laughs> we we do a little bit more into the sports side of things. I think it would be fun to add your perspective into that. Um, where can people follow your journey, find out more information and stay tuned for hopefully your future book? Well, I, I, I am, I did, uh, fortunately, uh, did, did a, my first podcast and afterwards the gentleman asked me, uh, when do you want, uh, are you going to write a book? And he said, uh, I said, well, I got a bunch of stuff, but I need a ghostwriter. And he said, well, I'd be interested in doing it. And he's the perfect guy. He's just so knowledgeable that he would understand. He understands what I'm trying to communicate. So we're hoping to put something together. Uh, but on Instagram, I'm uh, master underscore strength underscore. And um, so they can follow me there. I post a lot of little tra training tips on there, uh, <coughs> lifts and stuff like that. So I, I'm a, I, I share probably more and I probably sh should share, but I just love, I don't want to go and, have something happen to me, and I take this knowledge with me. I want to. I want to help other people enrich their lives, not just on the bench press. Oh, for goodness' sake, please! The bench press is fun. That's great, but I want to help enrich the world in uh, the, in, in in our country and in uh, the people. Man, that that's amazing, and I think you're you know you're well on your way. I think you're there's always two ways to make impact, right? It's like what you exemplify through your actions and then, you know, how you're able to communicate the belief system behind them. And I think, you know, that, that second part of the journey, I can't wait to hear more of your story and 
get deeper into that side of you know what you've learned as you as you deconstruct and dissect it from the last last yeah. few years. Yeah, every time I do one of these podcasts, I I want to. I wish I had paper and pen because I I say some things. I said something earlier, and I went, "Oh, that was really well, good." I gotta listen to this over again <laughs> so I can write it down. We'll make sure. We'll make sure to send you a send you a recording. All right. Thank you. Yes. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Bill. Uh, follow Bill at master underscore strength underscore on Instagram for uh, more weightlifting tips, more of the mental side of, you know, how to really maximize yourself and, and become the best version of yourself. Bill, thank you so much, man. We're so grateful to have you. I truly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for this interview. Thank you so much for your support. And uh, I'm looking forward to the future. Take care, man. Looking forward to talking to you again soon. All right. Thank you. Show the Pilot Boys some love by getting some of our exclusive merch at shop.pilotboys.com. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Hey, this is Partha. Not only am I a Pilot Boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. I started Lasso to help people improve their movement on a daily basis. We design and create compression apparel that enables you to move confidently, recover safely, and ultimately be the best version of yourself. We use a patented compression technology that activates key ligaments and tendons to help you improve your proprioception, coordination, and balance on a daily basis. Lasso socks were recently ranked number one by Men's Health because of how much they improve how your body works and the overall comfort, softness, and feel of the product. We're very proud of the Lasso socks, so check them out on our website at lassogear.com or at lassogear. Undo Media is proud to be the production partner for the Pilot Boys. Storytelling is what they do. From video production, podcasting, and consulting, Undo Media's focus is on telling your story. Find out why four Emmys and hundreds of clients will back up why you should contact Undo Media for your next project. Look them up at undomedia.com. Ready to hit these news and notes, Partha? Got some, some interesting topics today. Oh, yeah, we got some good ones. And I think, you know, for our listeners, this is going to be an interesting take that you're going to get from the Pilot Boys today, because I think our general vibe on much of the noise going on in society these days is like, okay, there's noise always, but what can we do with it and what can we take away from it to, you know, improve our lives and and keep us happy? Most importantly, how do we not get lost in it? (laughs) Exactly. Speaking of getting lost in things, let's start with the one that you know, has consumed a lot of conversation around me is the the Joe Rogan and Spotify situation. So people have been, you know, upset at Joe Rogan for the content of his podcast. And, yeah, they've wanted Spotify to do something about it. Spotify has stood with Joe Rogan. And uh, just this weekend, Joe Rogan put out uh, kind of like a like a semi apology, essentially just kind of kind of saying, you know, I'm going to get more diverse guests on my podcast you know, to juxtaposition uh, different types of views and stuff like that. Um, you know, the whole kind of thing was building. And then last week, Neil Young pulled his music off Spotify. And uh, I saw the share price had gone down for Spotify as well, which is now a public company. Um, so there's kind of a lot of things to underscore here. But I think there's there's kind of two primary areas that I wanted to start the conversation. One is... Spotify being public changes the way that that company operates, and it means the will of the people in the market affects very much their business decisions. And so that's an interesting dynamic to explore. And I think the second one is around this area of 
um, you know, technological enablement. And I think that we're in this era with a ton of decentralization going on. Um, we as a society have more or less elected that we don't trust most of the centralized sources that we've been receiving information from. At least we don't trust them as much as we used to. And so as we explore this new world we're building for ourselves, the amount of power we've given ourselves through technology is is incredible, but it also brings into question um, you know, new levels of responsibility for the ones among us that use this technological enablement and, and end up with a big following. And I think Joe Rogan is a really, really great example for this and likely why there's been so much conversation around his podcast specifically because he is more powerful from a, from a listener standpoint now than most major news networks, if not all. And uh, he is just a regular dude who just talks about whatever the heck he wants to talk about. And so I think the big question is, what are the responsibilities that we as individuals take on um, with this technological enablement V? And then the second part of that is, what do we actually want as a society? Because sometimes we think we want this, this freedom to use our voices, but then when somebody says something we don't want, you know, we, we are not super happy with that circumstance and we're looking for a higher kind of authoritative figure to, to enforce some rules there. So like where, where do you think we really want to be in this centralization versus decentralization world? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what, um, what is taught in, in school about politics and culture these days, but I know in, in the time that I spent studying history and culture, it was one of my favorite subjects in high school just because I wanted to know how the world worked, not just today, but in the past. But the concept of anarchy seems to be something that a lot of people culturally with the digital age are pushing toward, right? No checks, just a free-for-all, thinking that that is actually the best system. But the reality is in every aspect in every situation where anarchy existed within a population or a culture, it has failed without any system of checks and balances on that. That is why most countries have constitutions, laws that govern this, because if you leave it up to chaos, it's impossible to control that number of people, and especially human beings, versus other, other species who kind of have a natural way of of coexisting within the ecosystem and nature. Um, and I think what's happening with the technological revolution is that what's happening is the technology is advancing, but the system of checks and balances around that are not advancing in tune because they're ver very behind, right? Some of the regulatory bodies that exist are not as quick to be able to keep up with the technology as it advances. So by the time they figure out how do we control and manage it, we're probably on to the next new technology and they got to play catch up. They got to play catch up again. And specifically within the realm of media and news, it is very troubling because there is a lot of disinformation and anyone can enter it. And the idea of journalistic credibility has been really lost, you know, um, in the sense that when you have no experience and you haven't gone through the process of actually becoming a professional journalist, there are certain things that you're taught um, that I think are not being followed, right? Because what's happening is, as you said, the Joe Rogans of the world are coming into the marketplace and they are becoming a true threat to traditional media and journalism. They, they just speak their opinion. 
they don't have the same level of of responsibility or accountability and what's been interesting that is in a response to that we're seeing the mainstream media who is supposed to have that responsibility now starting to adjust and become more like this media that we're seeing from joe rogan so for the listener it's becoming really difficult to actually filter out opinion versus fact right and anybody has the right to express their opinion but what's happening that's dangerous now is that people are looking at people like joe rogan who's just having guests on to spark controversy and would be considered a shock jock um in years past um become gospel to the to a group of listeners because they have not been equipped by society to be able to properly filter opinion from news and in addition to that the 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 media outlets that they went to for news is now reporting in the same style that joe rogan is so we're just in this dangerous spot now where there isn't any accountability people are motivated by clicks joe rogan signed a huge deal with spotify needs to continue getting strong listeners and i think also donald trump really created a market for being controversial and the response that he got created this market of people that if you cater to you will get results and you will get numbers because they're very loyal right and i think with the pressure that came with the spotify deal for joe rogan the big price tag the pressure to get results now that he's partnered with the public company that pressure is also creating pressure to get results and i think that's probably he didn't need to go into the whole COVID platform but he realized by going into it that it was going to get those numbers and those results and stir the controversy that was needed i know that was pretty long-winded but there was a lot there that you opened with that i needed to unpack no it's it's well said well articulated and i think that that brings the listener to kind of the the central thesis here which is that we can't go around blaming one individual for these circumstances but the circumstances are a reflection of who we are as individuals and what we value in the society. Joe Rogan happens to be the comedian that has profited the most from this um, change in media consumption behavior that we've undergone as a society. But the change is within ourselves. We can choose what we listen to every day. We just want our news delivered in this way. Yes. Right? And so on both sides, you've got Joe Rogan and you've got an entire community that subscribes to the way that he delivers information and the information he delivers specifically. And then you have kind of the flip side of folks who subscribe to the exact opposite viewpoint, who get their views through, again, another set of sources. And it's created, in effect, a meritocracy in terms of getting listeners. But the meritocracy is not related to truth. It's related to uh entertainment really at the end of the day and we all saw this start with john stewart and i think it was a beautiful thing that john stewart did because he was an incredibly well-educated guy he was very good at towing the line between politics and being able to throw well-deserved criticism at the existing infrastructure yes Um, but at the same time there it was it was journalism what he was doing and i think like that's that's a really interesting differentiation today is is the difference between entertainment platforms and journalism if pilot boys has the same listener base as joe rogan one day 
I hope we don't get held to a journalistic standard because that's not the purpose of this podcast is we're not trying to be journalists here. We're trying to help convey a certain mindset and values and perspective that helps you guys, the listeners, stay happy, fulfilled, and understand what's actually important versus what's noise in your lives, right? And I think everybody has their own goals and aims for what they're doing. And in an outrage-based society, it doesn't benefit anyone to do these boycotts of platforms or to try and you know stir up controversy around what one person's saying or one person's not saying. But more importantly, you can't control society. You can control what you do. So you can choose where you want to listen to. You can choose what you want to listen to. And you can choose how those decisions actually affect your life. But I think the, the takeaway is that if you're doing something that's a negative to someone else, probably not what you should be doing. If you're doing something that's uplifting to everybody else, consume the sources that help you to stay a positive and giving person because we need a lot more of that in today's society. Yeah, and you know, growing up, you know, the, the word scapegoat does not have a positive. It's not supposed to have something positive attached to it. It's somebody that you blame for something that is not their fault, right? Mm -hmm. That's what a scapegoat is. I think in society, specifically in the digital era, when I see Twitter and I see media, it's always people looking for someone to blame, someone to express their outrage toward or whatever it is that's bothering them personally. They're trying to find a figure or a, a outlet for that, right? And the dangerous part of this and the earlier part of this is who's actually responsible for this? Is it Joe Rogan? Joe Rogan is taking a lot of flack for this. But like you said, at the end of the day, Joe Rogan is just a guy who started a podcast. His power came from how people responded to the podcast, but he did not come in here thinking, hey, I have the same journalistic responsibility that a multi-billion dollar news agency like CNN has, right? Or 100%. Spotify or a public corporation like Spotify. He did not tell Spotify to offer him $100 million to do his podcast over three years. Spotify made that decision, right? And Spotify has made the decision not to censor him in any way, not to censor, not to put any conditions on any guests or, or the content that's created, right? It is not the responsibility of Joe Rogan to check himself. But if you are working for a corporation or corp, you have corporate governance, governance, right? And guidelines that you're supposed to follow. But these media entities know that they are for-profit companies, right? And they know that consumers want this type of content, controversial content, content. And that's exactly how Donald Trump won the last election is controversy sells. And there are people who are willing to receive information that supports being anti right? That's always been part of the culture. How do I be anti? And there are so many ways now to be anti. To be anti-vax is to be anti-establishment. And people get a thrill out of being anti-establishment. It's not about the truth. It's about being anti-establishment, right? And no matter how credible, for example, the doctors who are going on these podcasts, doctors, when they become doctors, are obligated to follow what's called an, a Hippocratic Oath, which is actually... All the doctors that I know um, take that oath very seriously, right, to do no harm. Um, and doctors, just by going on these public 
settings and drawing attention to themselves as physicians are compromising that Hippocratic Oath because when you decide to do that, a lot of these doctors are generating revenue now because of being anti-vax. They're being invited to speak. And, and that compromises their character and that oath that they signed up for. So it's easy to say, oh, this guy is a doctor, so he's credible. We used to be able to say that 20 years ago because the doctors didn't do interviews. They wrote in journals, and one doctor's opinion was not all that mattered. It was a group of physicians. But to know that, you have to be well-versed, right? If you're the average listener and you're studying about vaccines in today's era, and you hear a doctor come on and talk a bunch of anti-vax science, that's that doctor's opinion, right? And that individual doctor's opinion based on the information that he gathered. But again, they are part of this system. It filters down. If the people at the top are compromised, it's going to flow down to the rest of our network, no matter how smart or intelligent or what you're obligated to do. We're seeing this happen throughout society. Um, and, and as a result of that, opinion is becoming factual. And we're not able to differentiate that everybody can speak their medical opinion. But does, that does not mean that because someone says something that you like to hear, that that person is right. And I think that that's what we're having trouble having that type of conversation. Like our platform, we try to be centered. But we both know that being centered in today's society does not get you clicks. It does not get you results. You just talked about this earlier. One of our, our posts that we posted has 400,000 views. But within that post, the reason that it's driving it is that there's actually information within that that is not factual, right? And that's actually part of what's driving why it has 400,000 views. Yeah. That's it. That's incredibly well said. And I think that the celebritization of the, the physician is an interesting topic for us to delve into maybe on another episode, because that's that's been a trend over the last you know 20 years, as you said, be as a result of our society's values shifting into that that kind of scope and ecosystem. And you see it. it, it the important thing about this conversation is that it's not about what side the conversation or the argument is coming from. It's about the fact that our priorities are changing in society and the way we value things are changing in society. And to, to your point, the way we look for information is looking for confirmation bias. The way that we Google, you're looking for what you want to find. You're not, you know, you're not being served information. And, you know, you can argue whether or not that's a good thing. Like when you were receiving your newspaper every morning, whatever city you lived in growing up, sure, that was being curated for you by an editor, which is one person who lives in your city, right? Or maybe a, a team of five people decide what's in the news every single day. That was happening. And so now five people don't decide that. You decide that for yourself. But just yeah. like the kind of bigger point around this, are we as a society ready for that responsibility? The answer is clearly no. We're, yeah. we're not ready for that. No, we're not. <laughs> but hopefully we will be soon. And I think that's this is a, a good example of the evolution that happens with any sort of new technology as it enters. Um, you can talk you know, crypto all you want. You can talk NFTs all you want. Everything that comes in, we do not know. Have, we do not have any idea how to handle it properly. And we don't have the discipline across our society 
to use things for positive purposes only. And that ultimately will be our biggest challenge as technology evolves and maybe our biggest limiting factor to the progression of more technology. Yep, 100%. And in the meantime, just try to have some baseline sympathy for people in the sense that a lot of people know not what they do. They're not thinking through these things um, the way that they should. And that's a direct result of the system. It isn't always the individual's fault. Obviously, people have individual responsibility. But when you live in a capitalist system, people are driven toward what makes them money, right? And being controversial makes you money now. And the first time you do it, you probably are like, it's it's like a drug, right? And you get the result. Um, let's 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 try to fix the core issue instead of focusing on individuals who are failing as a result of the the larger macro issue that we're facing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, just to continue the progression of the technology conversation, one other thing we're seeing um, this came out last week. 80% of the NFTs that have been minted on uh, the platform OpenSeas, which yeah, to my understanding is one of the leading NFT platforms, um, they're fake. They're from bots screen capping images off of Instagram, stealing from artists all over the world and trying to own the art that they don't own. So another use of a technology that's supposed to be a really, really incredible thing being used for the absolute wrong reasons to claim ownership over things people don't have ownership over. And ultimately, this is another another bang to the belt of you know the decentralized opinion, which is, hey, we should all have you know control over X, Y, Z. In our society, to your point, V, because we are undergoing such a dramatic transition from a society where everybody's been really, really poorly educated and really poorly awakened in terms of what their priorities are. Most people operate like drones in our society. They're not awake. They're they're focused on the wrong things. And so when you're giving these tools to these people, it's pretty inevitable they're going to be used for the wrong purpose. And whenever I see these headlines about technology, you can't blame the technology. It's lines of code. you You can't even blame the person using it the wrong way. But what you can do is take care of yourself in this world and make sure that if you're minting an NFT, don't post it on Instagram before you actually mint it, right? Yeah. Like your rights before you share your stuff. Like these are just fundamental things you have to do from like a responsibility standpoint now that are a byproduct of the technological advancements in the new world we're building for ourselves. Yeah, you, you bring up an important point. And I like to um, talk about this. I think giving any group that controls an economy kind of unchecked power, putting the power in one group's hands always ends up being dangerous, right? Um, and I, and I'll, 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 I'll preface this by talking about the healthcare system. You know, um, with the healthcare system, what's happened is power has really gotten con- controlled by insurance companies, um, taking power out of the physicians who actually see patients, right? And that's been a dangerous thing. The correction is not to put all of the power back into the doctor's hands because there are aspects of actually executing a national healthcare system that doctors do not know how to operate, right? So there is a role for this, for the insurance companies, and that the, the, the fix isn't just putting all the doc power into the doctor's hands. And I would say the same is for creative art, right? 
creatives are great at creating art. And I've worked with a lot of creatives in my life. I consider myself somewhat of a creative myself, enough not to be dangerous. Um, but the, the issue is they are really good at creating their art. Now, creating a platform in which there is, they also control completely the execution of their art, especially at high levels like this, when you're getting into economies of scale, can be dangerous, right? There is a role for Christie's in that can be helpful to both the artist in extracting the most value from their art or having some sort of system in place that gives them balance, a system advisors. And that is kind of the danger of this NFT market is because there are a lot of creatives, just like there are a lot of other artists who think their stuff is really good, but it really isn't. And the market decides that and dictates that having an open sea of just literally the name of the company i didn't do that on purpose of, <laughs> of of art actually makes it harder to find the good quality art for just the individual consumer than it is than it was before yeah yeah 100 percent agreed there's a lot more noise these days if you're great at what you do you will stand out in such a meaningful way so you should be excited about that if you're not great at what you do yet you should spend all your time becoming great at what you do yeah, like, not just putting out whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever you start with, right? Yeah, so. exactly. And you know, put it out if you want to put it out, but just get better. Focus on getting better. Get better. Yeah, get, get, and that's the thing is is the process is being lost in the shortcuts, and that's that's the dangerous part. But the shortcuts are great as long as they're part of the process, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, exactly. Um, on on that note, you know, we were just talking about the irresponsibility of the media. We'll slide that with a seamless transition into our yeah. sports topic of the day. Um, we all heard about Tom Brady, the, who I would consider probably the, the greatest player to ever play uh, football, um, his retirement this week. And unfortunately, the, probably one of the greatest, you know, living legends ever in sport didn't get to go out on his own terms because of exactly what we're talking about this desperation from espn journalists to break it before he had his own ability and uh his own ability to do it before he was able to do it and you know the the question that this brought up v and i were texting about it was is this even good for the sport you know, it did. Did anybody ask at ESPN, is us breaking the story right for football? Nobody asked that, you know, and, you know, Adam Schefter, who broke the story specifically, should probably have more of a affinity for Tom Brady than others. Right. Because he is also a Michigan alum um, for him to do this, this irresponsible, irresponsibly, Schefter is connected with everybody without getting confirmation with from Tom Brady himself, something this big, a story this big with somebody who has as much relevance to football. He just didn't care. Yeah. And uh, just to, just to add, I mean, very typical Michigan alum at that. Yeah. Yeah. Very typical of, of them, of him to do that, to not care. Um, and to break the story in the way, and then you go to the ESPN.com site, they had like six different stories ready to go about Tom Brady and his career. It was about desperation. As you said, ESPN has been struggling and they have done a lot of things that look like they're operating 
desperately that makes you wonder, should they still call themselves a worldwide leader in sports? With, I, I will put context to this. ESPN has been great. Um, I've worked with them in the past, and there are aspects of it that, you know, it doesn't mean that they're not beyond reproach and beyond criticism. And this specifically, this type of fail is the type of fail ESPN is not supposed to make. It is the mistake that that blog that some kid from from Ohio is supposed to make. You know what I mean? You're supposed to have the five people and ask the question that you asked. Is this good for the sport? Is this the right thing to do? And the truth is, I remember when, when Michael Jordan retired the first time. It was a huge story. And there was a rumor mill the day of, the morning of. I woke up. I actually cried that day. Um, I was a young kid, and Michael Jordan was everything. But he made the announcement at his press conference. There was speculation about it, but that news conference was when we heard um, from him that he was coming back. And it's, I think all of us should have the right to control our own narrative in life. doesn't matter how much the public demands instant news. And this, it was funny, the trigger of it, this story the pressure increases when the story is this big, right? Because what I saw was every single person who's ever had a picture with Tom Brady, ever played with Tom Brady, it also created an opportunity for them to go post on their platforms, get likes, get traction, get attention, right? Around a story. And nobody thought about the fact that none of us have heard anything from Tom Brady. Is this, is this the right thing for us to do? And it's just really sad. This is, it's sad. Um, he made the announcement this morning, but it was like, it was almost like, it, it, it just, it just sucked. It sucked for yeah. him. It sucked for the sport. It's just, I don't know, man. It's just, it's, it's sad. Yeah. You don't want to see people, you know, especially somebody who's given their whole life to something like that, just for our entertainment. You know, you just don't want to take those moments away from them. And I think, you know, hopefully media will learn um, the next major retirement like this will be LeBron's, which will be a, a very tough day for me, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually hope he does another decision so that he doesn't <laughs> tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> which would be great, right? But uh, I think I think this is ultimately one of those situations. I don't know where the leak from Tom's camp came. This thing happens all the time. Um in these types of circles, somebody gets a check to spill the beans early. And uh, it's pretty likely that's what happened here. And it's, it's disappointing. What's disappointing too, is that I think Tom is a fairly honest guy. And he said that he had not made a final decision yet when this story was leaked. So not only was it, was it, was it, it wasn't accurate. It wasn't verified. Yeah. Right. That's true. Um, he said he made, he went on his podcast yesterday and said, I have not made a decision yet, you know, um, and it's a tough decision for me to make. And his dad said the same thing. And we got the announcement today. Yeah, 100 percent. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see as things um, things roll out. I'm sure there will be more, you know, more interviews with him or at least something long form that comes out at some point. It'll definitely not come from ESPN. It'll probably come from somewhere else. But uh, I think what's interesting is that these reports um the way that sports journalism goes uh, it's in my opinion even 
in in the way sports journalism operates far better than political journalism <laughs> these reporters even hold themselves to a higher standard than most people telling us the news uh but one thing i i you know really want to call out is the success of platforms like the athletic and kind of the more thoughtful well-written blogs players tribune um, which has some great content on there yeah uh, showing us there's a huge market still for really well-written thoughtful content and so that's a shout out to everybody that i mean listens to us listens to you know wants actual good media out there if you vote with your dollars and with your readership you the world will adapt to you know your interests as time passes yep we've had a pretty uh, tough subject subject narrative uh up to this point let's let's transition to something a little bit more uplifting right the the cincinnati Bengals. we all know who they are now um, <laughs> <laughs> um 30 plus years they haven't been in even won a playoff game and they draft a, a a a great quarterback in joe burrow um who becomes the first quarterback in nfl history to lead a team to the super bowl in his second year makes it even more amazing is that he tore his acl in his first year yeah um, so came into the second year um and just an amazing story amazing story for the state of ohio um just a just an overall amazing story particularly you know since we're on a sad note particularly sad for um for browns fans because they say one player can't make a difference um when you are the number one quarterback chosen you are supposed to be a difference maker that's why you're drafted um and the results that we've seen from baker baker mayfield as a number one draft pick um has shown with the joe burrow and seeing what odell beckham is doing with the rams is particularly difficult when um, you're obligated and you see the other quarterbacks that could have been drafted. It is a strict liability situation. No knock on Baker. It's not his fault um, that he was drafted number one um, and expected to be that. But the fact that he hasn't d delivered is a failure on the organization's part um, and particularly sad for the Browns fans. But for me, as a kid from Ohio, um, seeing that Joe Burrow has ties to Ohio State as well. If you're not rooting for the Bengals in this particular scenario, I think your Ohio card has to be revoked. <laughs> I agree completely. This is this is an amazing game. Watching the Bengals make it here was one of the most unpredictable things you know we could have ever witnessed. But watching Joe Burrow ball out, watching that rookie kicker from Florida, Evan McPherson, he just set a record for the most made field goals consecutively in the postseason with 12 of 12 so far. And uh, the kid, the kid legitimately is so locked in and so professional. It's been amazing to watch. So to your point, V, every single player on a roster matters. These specialty positions make the biggest impact. When you have guys that have this kind of cool, collected confidence that the Bengals are moving with, it's it's going to be hard for the Rams to beat the Bengals this year. It's going to be really hard. Yeah, and I, I want to give a – we'll get to the Rams in a second because there's a contrast in cultures and how they got here, right? There's no yeah. one one right way. But I wanted to give a particular shout-out to my friend Eli Apple. He's gone through a lot of adversity um, through early part of his career. He was a high draft pick. I knew how good he was at Ohio State, how much work he put in. Um, I believe there's there's a story out that Matt Rule, Carolina, told him that he would never 
be on an NFL roster uh, again um, to then go to Cincinnati, um, go through all that adversity as a young guy and come out on the other side. I'm, I'm really happy for him. I'm also happy for Von Bell who played in that same secondary with them, Ohio State guys. Um, and all the Buckeyes, there's a bunch, Hubbard, there's a, it, that, that roster is littered with Buckeyes. So that's probably the reason why they're here, uh, including Joe Burrow. LSU fans are having some issues with us taking, taking some ownership of Joe Burrow, but he takes ownership of Ohio State, so we yeah. can take some ownership there as well. Yeah, they got a rental for a couple of years is what happened. But, but, you know, that's one story. The underdog, build it from scratch, be doubted. Um, make it just against all odds versus the Rams and these big market teams that just buy seemingly can buy their way into championships. And it presents an interesting story because although everybody has the same salary cap, there are specific advantages you get from being a big market team to be able to get star players in specific situations, come and take less money um, for a year or two to play in a market like LA, play in that five and a half billion dollar stadium that is SoFi Stadium, which is four billion dollars more than Jerry's World. To just give you context, it costs four billion dollars more <laughs> to build <laughs> than the greatest spectacle before that. Um, they kind of took a different approach to this. They compromised the development in the draft. I don't think they have another first round draft pick until 2026. Went all in on getting a championship and getting to the Super Bowl in LA. You live in LA, you know football and professional football doesn't necessarily garner the same type of support that it gets in small market teams. So you essentially, to get the attention, they have to have stars. They have to go all in. They have to be in a Super Bowl because if you're not a winner, in a market like LA, the focus just isn't there. But to their credit, people doubted their strategy, but it's worked. You know, they've went all in. <laughs> that team has every star that literally exists in the NFL. And it is a tale of two cultures, this blue-collar Midwest culture of Cincinnati versus this let's buy celebrity glitz and glamour of the Rams. It makes a very interesting story. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I really enjoyed about watching the Rams last week uh, was seeing Aaron, Aaron Donald's passion really yeah. light up their defense. And I think despite the fact that they do have these stars that have come in, Von Miller, uh, Odell, obviously, um, they also have, is it Eric Eric Weddle? Waddle? Yeah, Weddle. Who was Came out of retirement. Yeah, retired for two years. And got the call, showed up, and was a difference maker last week. There's a, an equally powerful underdog story, especially because so many of the guys on the Rams were written off till they showed up there, including Matt Stafford, who, you know, when he was at Detroit, there was speculation about how good of a quarterback he was. And uh, he finds himself in the Super Bowl immediately after leaving. And, you know, there's, there's obviously money that, can, that was used to make this happen. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's really nice to see two teams of which, you know, I feel positively toward both in the Super Bowl. That's like a really yeah. good game. And, and I want to talk about the Rams specifically, poker, and, and bring it to poker, right? There is a moment that you should push all in, right? And the Rams looked at the dynamic of their team and said, we have a team that should compete for the Super Bowl, 
let's push our chips all in and trade for Matthew Stafford. And they did it. That is the exact difference between the Cleveland Browns and the LA Rams. The Cleveland Browns have every aspect of their team put together, but they did not have the cojones to pull the trigger on a Matt Stafford type of trade um, to win now. When you're built to win now, sometimes you have to try to win now. And you can't spare people's feelings. The Rams did not spare Jared Goff's feelings. They gave him his contract. He got traded to the Lions, has an opportunity there. But they knew that he wasn't the quarterback that they needed to win a championship. And they were very practical in their approach. It wasn't emotional. It wasn't built on anything else. And they are sitting in the Super Bowl now as a result of that. And there's something to be said about knowing when to push your chips all in. There are a lot of people who are scared to do that in business, in life, in sports. It, it, it takes a special strength, right? And anybody who criticizes Elon Musk, Musk, I always counter with, this is a guy who already won with the sale of PayPal, but believed so much in Tesla that he pushed all of his personal chips into the middle of the pile because he believed in the company. And the results now are a result of him being willing to push all in. So that is my takeaway from the Rams on a positive note of why why I give it. There's no one way to be successful, right? Yeah. Um, and and the tale of two approaches highlights that. And whoever wins the Super Bowl is going to be a deserved winner because they took the risks, made the bets, and did what they needed to do to put themselves in position to be there. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm excited for next week. We can do a little bit of a deeper dive into the Super Bowl, talk a little bit more about some of the individual narratives going on. Uh, but for now, that's been you know news and notes for this week. Uh, we encourage you to stay stay tuned for this interview with Bill Gillespie, uh, yes. now the new world record holder for the bench press at age 62. He is an incredibly inspiring human. He's somebody we've been able to interface with through Lasso, and that's how we got connected with him. Just an amazing person, and his story is one that I think once you listen to it, you're going to leave not only feeling more empowered, but with an itch to get in the gym. So stay tuned for that. As always, stay moving. Pilot Boys out. Pilot Boys, we get on Once we get on